Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Today, our episode comes from our most recent annual conference, Rebuilding the Economy After the Pandemic, Challenges and Avenues of Reform. We'll pick up from where we left off last and discuss funding for infrastructure in order to sustain development with Rick Rybeck. Mr. Rybeck received his master's in real estate and urban development from American University and his JD from American University Washington College of Law. He is the founder and director of Just Economics LLC, a firm founded in order to guide policy towards helping people and families. Their goal is to promote job creation, affordable housing, transportation efficiency, and sustainable development. We were lucky enough to talk with Mr. Ryback about building, maintaining, and operating infrastructure needed for development and different taxation methods in order to fund said infrastructure. We hope you enjoyed this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Okay, well, today's discussion is called uh, Funding Infrastructure for Prosperity, Sustainability, and Equity. And we have a couple primary uh, questions to answer today, I hope. And basically we're trying to figure out if we can obtain funding for infrastructure so that one, we obtain sufficient funds to build, operate, and maintain these public facilities and services. Two, so that we can develop, so that development is encouraged adjacent to the infrastructure rather than at remote locations. And three, so that all the beneficiaries of this infrastructure pay their fair share. The theme of the show today, and something to keep in mind, is that how we raise money for infrastructure is just as important as how much money we raise. And one way to think about this is to compare the effects of a per gallon fee for water and sewer versus a sales tax. My hunch is that most of us who pay for water and sewer services pay a per gallon fee. Of course, sales taxes can raise lots of money, so we'll compare and contrast the two different ways of doing this. The per gallon fee is kind of nice because it encourages water conservation. A lot of parents tell their kids not to leave the faucet running because they don't wanna pay excessive water bills. And, When somebody has a leaky faucet and they're paying by the gallon, they don't just see water going down the drain, they see their money going down the drain. And this is a real incentive to fix that leaky faucet. Again, as I mentioned earlier, you can raise lots of money with a sales tax. But would parents tell their kids not to leave the faucet running? And if they had a leaky faucet, would they be motivated to fix it? Would they go out and buy something they didn't want or need just to compensate the water authority with some additional sales tax for the water they were wasting? The answer to those questions is probably no. So I think we can see that there's some both equity and efficiency related user fees. But then the question is, well, can we pay the whole cost of infrastructure facilities and services with user fees? And typically, if we set user fees high enough to pay the total cost, it would create tremendous financial hardship on users, and it would inhibit the mass consumption of public goods and services that are essential both to public well-being and that are necessary to justify the investment in the first place. 
So let's see perhaps if there are other beneficiaries. Well, direct users aren't the only beneficiaries and getting all beneficiaries to pay their fair share is, is part of making uh, infrastructure affordable and sustainable. And an example of this would be drivers. They might not be riding a, a transit vehicle, but they're benefiting from transit. The reason they're benefiting from transit is that transit is taking other people out of their cars. And if people were on, who are now on transit were in their cars instead, traffic congestion would be much worse. And one way we can get drivers to pay for their benefit is by imposing a distance and congestion-based charge on roadway use. And this would accomplish two things. One, it would reduce roadway congestion, and it would also provide funds, some of which could be used for roadway maintenance and operation, and some of which could be used to help pay for the driver's transit benefit. So that's something that we could think of as an additional source of funding. But are there even other beneficiaries? And I would suggest that in addition to um, indirect beneficiaries, there are invisible beneficiaries. So let's think about the owners of vacant lots and get back to our water and sewer example. The owners of vacant lots aren't drinking any water or flushing any toilets, at least not at those vacant lots, should they pay any fee to the Water and Sewer Authority? And as we're thinking about that question, a way to, to answer it is to imagine two identical vacant lots, the same distance from the center of town, with the same zoning, the same economic demand for development. The only difference is that lot one has water and sewer pipes at the property line, Lot two on the other side of town has no water or sewer pipes within a half mile. Which lot is more valuable? And my hunch is that most of you will intuitively understand that lot one is more valuable. But is lot one more valuable because of anything that the owner has done? No, lot one is more valuable because the water and sewer authority has provided and hopefully maintained water pipes at the property boundary. And therefore, maybe the landowner of that vacant lot should be paying the water authority, not a user fee, but an access fee, because access to water and sewer pipes is creating value on, on that vacant lot. So now that we've talked about these different types of beneficiaries, let me talk about some problems that we have under the status quo and how they might be resolved. The first problem is something I call the infrastructure conundrum. Now, typically infrastructure is created to facilitate development, but if that infrastructure is well-designed and well-constructed, infrastructure inflates the price of well-served land and higher land prices then chase development to cheaper but more remote sites that are farther away from the infrastructure. So the politicians, being the good people that they are, they extend the infrastructure to these remote sites only to have the cycle begin again as land prices start going up and development is chased even further away. And the net result of this process is urban sprawl. And urban sprawl has three big problems. At first, it destroys the environment, ruins farmland and conservation land. Two, it wastes our existing infrastructure. 
And three, it busts our municipal budgets because we have to duplicate these expensive infrastructure systems, such as roads and water and utility lines across vacant lands out into these remote developments. So oh, that's the infrastructure conundrum. A related problem is the no good deed goes unpunished scenario. So we may see a distressed neighborhood and think, how can we help the people who live there? Maybe better schools, maybe better public safety, maybe better transportation to help them get access to jobs and education. And yet, if we accomplish any of these improvements, land prices will rise, rents will rise, and some of the intended beneficiaries could be displaced. And the net result is that tax dollars intended to help the poor end up enriching landlords who tend not to be poor. So why does this happen? Population increases and infrastructure improvements cause land prices to rise. And private landowners under our present system can appropriate the lion's share of this publicly created land value. This ability to appropriate publicly created land value is the fuel for land speculation. Land speculation is buying land, not for the purpose of using it, but simply to hold it, hoping that it'll be worth more in the future. Speculators hold land off the market, or perhaps they put it on the market, but at a higher than market price, simply because they're expecting to reap future uh, gains on land value. Land speculators, through this activity, create an artificial scarcity of land available for development today, particularly at prime sites near existing infrastructure. And this results, this artificial scarcity results in real increases in land prices, which simply fuels the infrastructure conundrum even more. So perhaps some of you are familiar with reality TV. Reality TV basically consists, instead of a scripted show, if you will, it's more like a contest or a game of some sort where the contestants are in some sort of competition. And by itself, this might not gain many viewers. So the producers add a little twist. And typically the twist is that they create incentives for people to behave badly. And what do people do when they have incentives, typically economic incentives, to behave badly. They behave badly. And for some reason, a lot of us find that fascinating to watch. Now, I don't want to get into a debate with people about whether or not this is good entertainment. That's for another discussion. But whether or not we create incentives for people to behave badly in reality TV is one thing. But should we do this in real life? I think not. But let's look at what's going on. When we look at what politicians and community members say, we often say that we want more jobs and we want more affordable housing. We also say that we want businesses to flourish and provide goods and services to customers and employment to residents. But what do we do? If a landowner constructs or improves a building, we increase the taxes that that owner must pay. And those taxes will go up, not only the year when the improvement is made, but every year thereafter that that improvement adds value to the property. On the other hand, if a landowner 
allows an existing building to deteriorate or they board it up and thereby deprive the community of housing and jobs, a community will reward that owner with lower taxes. And finally, the owners of vacant lots and boarded up buildings typically pay much less tax in terms of property tax than their more responsible neighbors next door with nicely developed and maintained buildings. Even though the cost to maintain the streets, the sidewalks and the sewers are the same, whether the lots are developed or not. So here we can see that the incentives, the economic incentives based on our current tax structure are contrary to the things that we want to have happen. And so what do we do about that? Well, actually, before I get to what do we do about this, some people might say, well, maybe it's not such a big problem. After all, the nationwide average, I mean, property tax rates are different from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but typically they range between one and 2% of value. And a lot of people would say, well, that just doesn't sound like a big deal. Um, but, you know, sales taxes are typically higher, maybe around five or 6%. But unlike a sales tax, the property tax is paid each and every year that an improvement adds value to a property, whereas a sales tax is only paid once. So economists have a technique called net present value. It's a way of taking a stream of income or a stream of payments and collapsing it into a one-time payment or, or income. So if we use that calculation to figure out what is the economic impact of a property tax on buildings at one or 2% per year, well, on long-lived assets in a low inflation environment, which is what we've had until recently, the economic impact of that is equivalent to a 10 to 20% sales tax on the cost of construction, labor, and materials. Now, if I went to my city council or your city council or county council, and I said, you know, you guys need revenue. How about a 10 to 20% sales tax on construction, labor, and materials? Well, these politicians would look at me and say, Rick, we need money, but this is a terrible idea. This is going to make construction more costly. We'll end up with fewer buildings and the ones that are left will be much more costly for people either as residents or businesses to buy or rent. This is going to be terrible for us. Well, without realizing it, that's what the existing property tax is doing. It's, it's creating an, an environment where people who are trying to create or maintain or improve buildings are facing what's equivalent to a 10 to 20% sales tax on the cost of doing that. So let's look at different ways of funding infrastructure and compare and contrast them. So here's a scenario where we have some new infrastructure and uh, this M, just for the sake of this example, will represent a new transit station that's just been created. And next to the transit station, we have two lots. We have a vacant lot on the left and a developed lot on the right. And the jurisdiction needs to raise $1,000 in revenue. And there are two ways that they could do that. Some people might say, well, you know, this owner of this property, he has this big building, a lot of residents, or if it's commercial employees or patrons or customers, they're coming into this building, they're using the infrastructure. So because this owner, and the people this owner is bringing to the site are using this infrastructure, they should pay in proportion to the amount of use 
that they are actually or potentially having. So we'll create a development impact fee based on the size or value of this building. And of course, if we do that, this property owner will pay the full thousand dollars, this owner will pay nothing. An alternative approach is to say that this new infrastructure, this new transit station is gonna benefit both properties the same. And therefore each owner should pay the same regardless of what development they have. Well, let's see how these two different approaches play out. So we're talking about a development fee on the one hand versus what I call land value return on the other. Let's start with the development fee. As I mentioned, it's a fee or tax on the value of the building. Now, if there's no building, there is no tax or fee. So this fee or tax constitutes a cost of production. And Economics 101 tells us that if we increase the cost of production, production goes down. And what that means, given the steady state of demand, is that if the quantity of stuff goes down, the price of what's left over will go up. So this is not surprising to us. This is what we're typically used to. If you put a tax on something like buildings, the price goes up. But Next to this new infrastructure, this new subway, which I would think we create because we want people to use it, do we want to reduce development near the transit stop and increase its price? I think not. But if we do that, if we tax the building, that's appropriating privately created value. After all, the, the value in the building is created by the owner, not by the transit authority or by the public at large. So we're appropriating privately created value and we're going to burden the builder, the future owners, and future tenants. Let's look now at the alternative approach of land value return. This is a fee based on land value. And it's important to remember that land itself is not produced. So land value return is not going to be a cost of production. So what's the impact of a land value return on land price? Well, the price of land is based on the benefits that people expect to receive from owning it. And as we've talked about recently, those benefits of land ownership are primarily related to the access to infrastructure, to public goods and services. And this is the reason why when people talk about land prices, they often say location, location, location. So let's look at how this works. If we impose a land value return fee based on the value of land, this is not a cost of production, it's a cost of ownership. If we increase the cost of ownership of land, the benefits of owning it go down. And as a result, the price of land goes down. Now, this is perhaps the most difficult thing in my talk to understand. Today. And the reason for that is that we take it for granted that when we impose on something, the price goes up. And the reason for that is that 90% of the things that we're familiar with, the laptops we're using for this presentation, the clothes we're wearing, the table that our laptop sits on, the house we're in, all of these things are things that are produced. And putting taxes and fees on those things are And as we said, it makes the amount of stuff go down and the price go up. We're not used to the concept of things that aren't produced. And there are very few things that fit into that category. Land is one of them. 
And the key thing here is that putting a tax or fee on land value does not diminish the quantity. It, and therefore there's just as much land after we've uh, taxed it as there was before. So land value return returns publicly created value and it does not put a burden on builders or tenants in the future. So here we are with our situation again. Where's the, the new transit stop, the two lots, the developed lot on the right and the vacant lot on the left. With the development impact fee, the vacant lot pays nothing and the developed lot pays the full thousand dollars. Under land value return, both owners pay $500. And let's look at how that affects people's behavior going into the future. Well, Nobody likes to pay taxes or fees. And when taxes and fees are imposed, people always try to avoid them. And so how do we avoid the development fee? Well, there are several ways we've alluded to them before. I can avoid the fee or tax on building value by reducing the number, size, or quality of the new buildings I create. If I have an existing building, I can reduce the tax or fee on that by reducing maintenance and by postponing or canceling any improvement. And finally, if I really want to build new buildings, maybe I could build them in a different jurisdiction where the tax rates on buildings are lower. So these are all ways that I can avoid the fee or tax on building value. It's much more difficult, if not impossible, to avoid the fee on land value. And there are several reasons for that. The first, as we talked about before, is that the value of the land is not controlled by the owner. The value of the land is determined by what the community has done around it to make it a potentially valuable place to live or work. What has the community done? Well, they've created infrastructure. They've uh, uh, created uh, zoning and other development regulations that allow uh, or constrain development to occur. So all of these things create value in the land that the owner has no control over. And then I don't know if anybody in the audience has tried this, but has anybody tried to move land from a high tax jurisdiction to a low tax jurisdiction? Let me just tell you, the logistics of doing this are just horrendous. There are so many dump trucks involved. And at the end of the day, after moving tons of dirt, you still have a piece of land in a high tax jurisdiction. So the point of this discussion is that we simply cannot avoid the tax or fee on land value. It has to be paid. And therefore, the landowner is motivated to generate income from the site in order to pay the tax or fee. And what that means is they're going to develop vacant land or sell to somebody who will in order to generate funds to pay the fee. So the solution to the infrastructure conundrum to the no good deed goes unpunished problem is to transform our property tax into a land value return fee. And the way to do that, the way to reverse these upside down incentives that we talked about earlier are to reduce the tax rate applied to privately created building values while increasing the tax rate applied on publicly created land values. We can do this in such a way that we raise the same total revenue, but as we've just discussed, the incentives facing owners will be both more fair 
and more productive. For people who like diagrams, here's a different way of understanding the status quo. And let me walk people through this. So this upside down triangle on the left here, this is the public. And we can see there are lots of tenants. And these tenants are not just residential tenants, they're also commercial tenants. Most buildings, most, I'm sorry, most businesses are tenants. Most businesses don't own the premises that they occupy. So we've got residential and commercial tenants here. And then we have landowners. And of course, a subset of landowners at the tip here, are what I call owners of prime sites. These are the people who own land in the downtowns where they get the greatest benefit from being close to all the urban infrastructure amenities that we provide. And under the status quo today, members of the public pay taxes primarily on labor and capital to the government. The government uses those taxes to create public goods and services. And as we talked about, those public goods and services often result in higher land values. And today, only one or 2% per year go back to the public sector through the, through the property tax. The lion's share end up as a windfall to landowners and primarily to these owners of prime sites. And the big conclusion or takeaway from this diagram is that most of us end up paying for infrastructure twice. First, we pay taxes to the government to create the infrastructure. But if we really wanna take advantage of the infrastructure that our taxes have, have paid for, we want to rent either or, or buy a home or a place of business next to that new infrastructure. So we go to the landlord full of dollars and say, hey, Mr. Landlord, here's my first month's rent. The landlord looks at us and smiles and says, well, that'll rent you any place else in town, but here you're right next to the new infrastructure and you've got to pay a rent premium. So what happens is we end up paying a really high rent to get access to the infrastructure that made the land valuable in the first place. So that's why I'm saying we're paying twice for infrastructure. And I don't know about you, but as for me, I'm not thrilled to pay for stuff, but I do. I pay for it once, but I certainly don't like paying for it twice if I don't get any more value. So paying for infrastructure twice is not a very winning proposition. How to, here's how the reform changes the status quo. By returning land value to the public sector and recycling it for public purposes, we make public infrastructure financially self-sustaining, as you can see through this loop here. And if it's not completely self-sustaining, it's certainly much more self-sustaining than it is under the status quo. Again, this is the status quo, and this is the proposal under land value return, where we return a much more robust share of land value to the public sector that creates it. And what this means is because we're getting more land value return, we can reduce the taxes on labor and capital, which is good for productivity and vitality in the economy. And because we're returning land value to the public sector and creating downward pressure on land prices and rents, this also means that the rents that people pay are much less than under the status quo. So the good news about this reform, land value return, is that it reduces the taxes that most of us pay. 
and it reduces the rents that we pay to access the infrastructure that we pay for. So land value return, just to sum up, is that when infrastructure is well-designed and well-executed, it inflates the price of nearby land, returning publicly created land value to the public sector that created it, and recycling it for infrastructure creation operations and maintenance is land value return. And without spending more money or losing any revenue, reducing the tax on buildings and increasing the tax on land makes both buildings and land more affordable. Isn't that amazing? That without new spending or any loss of revenue, this tax shift makes both land and buildings more affordable. This is good for residents and businesses alike. And it's equitable primarily because landowners are going to be paying taxes, not in proportion to how much private value they create, but in proportion to how much public benefit they receive from the public sector. And isn't that a more fair way to pay for public goods and services in the first place? So here's an additional benefit. As we talked about, the land value fee tends to induce the development of vacant land. And the economic impact or impetus for development will be the greatest where land values are highest. And land values are highest adjacent to existing urban infrastructure, which is where we want development to occur. So if we make the transition from the status quo to land value return, we will see many dilapidated, boarded up buildings and vacant lots or surface parking lots in our downtown get developed. And not only will these properties get developed and take advantage of existing infrastructure, but because the demand for development is finite at any given time, the more we develop these underutilized infill sites, we are reducing the pressure for development at the urban fringe. And so we're reducing sprawl. So this technique solves the infrastructure conundrum. It creates more compact development, which allows for more walking, biking, and transit, which is healthier. It means that for people who drive, they'll take fewer and shorter auto trips, which means less congestion, that's good. Less energy consumption and pollution, that's good, and also leads to less global warming and less climate change. And Here's an even better benefit in terms of policy, which is that by reducing urban sprawl and reducing the wasteful duplication of infrastructure into the hinterlands, we can serve the same number of people with less infrastructure per capita, which means lower taxes. And who wouldn't want that? And finally, because we're having more compact development, this reform helps preserve our rural areas for agricultural recreation. So um, the good news is that this isn't just interesting economic theory. Uh, land value return has been used in jurisdictions around this country and around the world. In particular, uh, this technique uh, called a split rate property tax, where the tax applied to building values is lower than the rate applied to land values. This has been done in, in Pennsylvania cities, some as, as far back as 1913. And the jurisdictions that do this have weathered economic downturns much better than jurisdictions using the traditional property tax. 
this is just an example of how some jurisdictions using a split rate tax have done better than places that don't. And we can go into this in more detail during the question and answer period if people want to. And that concludes my formal presentation. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share it with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.